Good morning, CBC. Once again, welcome. As always, so glad and grateful that you're here. Just knowing that this is still one way that we can come together on a weekly basis, so thank you for joining us this morning. Now, if you missed last week, we are back into our series through the book of Romans. And last week, Pastor Brandon did an amazing job of walking through uh, chapter 4. In chapter 4, we saw what faith is and what faith does for us as believers when it comes to our relationship with God. Using Abraham as both an example and as a model, we saw that one, faith is trust and reliance in God's power and promises, including the work of Jesus. And secondly, it's by faith that we are declared righteous by God. And this is a major theme in the book of Romans, that we are declared righteous by faith and not by works, that God not only sees us as not guilty, but is innocent. He sees us as holy and blameless, worthy of all blessing and favor. And today, as we make our way into chapter 5, we're going to see how this reality should impact our everyday lives. Our passage this morning is going to demonstrate uh, one way that our faith affects what we tangibly experience on a day-to-day basis. So if you have your Bibles, turn into Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 1, and you can just keep that open because we're going to go through it a little by little. So beginning with verse 1, Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here Paul reminds us and he elaborates on what God has done for us through Jesus. By faith we are declared righteous. And because we've been declared righteous by God, we now have peace with God. Now if you remember a few weeks ago in our Christmas series, I know it's a a little while ago, a little while ago. But on the very first Christmas, a group of shepherds are out in the field uh, near the, the town of Bethlehem. And at some point, an angel of the Lord appears to them, and he says something to the extent of, do not be afraid, I bring you great news that will cause great joy to all people. That in the town of David, a Savior has been born, he is the Messiah, the Lord. Immediately after, the skies would open, a choir of angels would appear, and they would be singing, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And that word peace that's that's used in the Gospel of Luke is the same word that's used here in, in Romans. And what the angels are declaring back on the very first Christmas is that Jesus coming to earth, Jesus' birth was God ushering in and establishing peace between humanity and himself. And this word peace is from a Hebrew word, shalom, which means wholeness and completeness. And in the context of relationship, to have shalom meant to have perfect harmony, perfect affection. And the shalom was not merely the absence of conflict or tension, but it was two parties coming together fully committed and devoted and seeking out the good and the well-being. 
of the other. And thus the mystery and intrigue of, of much of Jesus' life and his ministry would be how he would establish this peace, how he would make peace available and what we as believers, what we would have to do in order to receive it and experience it. Well, we would see what Jesus would have to do in order to make peace available in the Gospels. And here in Romans 5, we see it simply by faith that we are able to receive this peace, to experience this peace, to have peace with God. That those who trust and rely in God's power and promise are those who now have shalom when it comes to their relationship with God. And because we've been declared righteous by faith and not by works, there is no longer hostility or tension between us and God. More importantly and more specifically, God is no longer hostile towards us. There's no more animosity. There's no wrath. There's no anger, no frustration or disappointment, judgment or condemnation. There's not even ever apathy or indifference. Because we've been declared righteous, there's now only a fullness of love and affection, mercy and kindness, joy and delight. And it's so profound when you stop to think about what Paul is saying here in chapter 5. In light of everything he's just told us in the first three chapters of this book, when he was talking about sin and wrath and judgment and condemnation, In Romans 3, Paul says that if it were based solely on works, there would be no one who's righteous, not even one. No one who even seeks God, everyone is turned away. There is no one who does good. He says our throats are open graves, our tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers are on our lips, our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, our feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark our ways, the ways of peace we do not know. Yet because of what Jesus has done by faith, we now have peace with God. And it's so profound and powerful when you stop to think about what Paul is saying here. He continues on in, in verse 2. It says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Because we've been declared righteous by faith and by faith alone, because we now have peace with God, we now have access to God. We are now covered in grace, surrounded and immersed in grace. And Paul here is using Old Testament temple language to demonstrate the significance of what's happening. That just like the Old Testament temple way of uh, doing things, where only a select few were able to draw near to God and enter his presence and at best to do so with fear and trembling, Paul says that by faith all of us now have the ability to draw near to God and enter his presence with confidence and with freedom anytime 
anywhere because we are surrounded by grace. I remember my first job right after college as an accounting major, as an entry-level auditor in an accounting firm. And because I worked for a smaller accounting firm, most of our clients were pretty small, and most of the times it would be one senior-level accountant and myself, maybe a manager at most. And because there was only a couple of us there, I had access to the entire accounting department whenever we would be at a client's location. And thus, at any time, I could walk into the controller's office, the CFO's office, and I could request documents, files, whatever I needed to complete the review or complete the audit. But whenever I had to, to get up and walk over to ask for something, I was always nervous, I was always anxious, I dreaded having to enter their office because I knew that I was a nuisance to them. They didn't love having me there. They merely tolerated me there because in many ways I was kind of like a necessary evil. But you see, what Paul is telling us here is that because of what God has done for us, because we have peace with him, God doesn't merely tolerate us. But rather, we are surrounded and immersed in his grace. That because of what he's done for us, God is with us. He is for us, delighting in us, having favor towards us. And thus, we can draw near to God. We can be in his presence anytime, anywhere with confidence and with freedom. And then in the second half of verse 2, Paul tells us how we should respond. When we think of what we have gained, what we've received by faith and faith alone, Paul says, here's the proper response. Second half of verse 2 says, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Our response to what God has done we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice. About a year or two ago, I was coaching um, one of my daughter's basketball teams on a Sunday afternoon, and it was a pretty uneventful game. We were playing against an easier opponent, so uneventful. All the kids got to play. I think most of the kids got to shoot, even score. So after the game, we're walking out of the gym, and majority of the girls, they're, they're happy, they're laughing, they're joking, smiling, getting ready for their snacks. When I noticed that one of the girls, she was visibly upset. She looked distraught. I could tell she had been crying. So I walked over to ask if everything was okay, and she kind of just brushed me off, and she just walked straight towards her car. Her parents were also a little confused, but they obviously went with her. And then a few minutes later, I received a text from them and said, don't worry, she's fine. She didn't realize that we won the game. She had thought that we lost. You see, certain results, certain outcomes elicit certain kinds of response for the most part. Right? You win, you, you celebrate, you lose, you, you know, a little discouraged, maybe even devastated. And what Paul says is that when it comes to what 
God has done for us and what we have received by faith, the proper response is to rejoice, to experience joy in the hope of the glory of God. Now, the word hope, for most of us, in terms of how we use it in our language, in our context, hope is kind of like, is, it's kind of a weak word, right? If I say, I hope the Lakers repeat. I hope LeBron gets another ring. I hope 2021 is a better year than 2020. I hope things go back to normal sooner than later. I hope there is healing and reconciliation in our country sooner than later. When I say I hope, what I'm expressing is something that I want with the possibility that I might never get it. Hope often expresses a desire surrounded by uncertainty. And thus, in many ways, hope is kind of a weak word when we say, I hope for something. But here in the scripture, when it comes to the Greek, the word that is translated to hope, it carries a stronger, a much stronger meaning. It means to believe with certainty and with conviction. To hope is to patiently and eagerly expect something to happen. Paul says we are to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, the glory of God, it's obviously a strong reference to what God will do in the final days. His final act of salvation, Jesus' second coming, final judgment, new heaven, new earth, all of that good stuff. But it also implies everything that God is going to do until that day. And thus, what Paul is saying, what the scriptures are telling us, is that because we've been declared righteous, because we have peace with God, because God is with us and for us, because he delights in us and has favor towards us, we can be confident. We can be optimistic about everything that God has in store. And because we can be confident and optimistic, we can rejoice in all that God has done, and all that God is doing, and in all that God will do. So main idea from today's talk, you gain nothing else from, from what is being shared today. Here's, here's the main point. Because of what God did, we rejoice in what He's doing. Because of all that God has done, we can rejoice in all that he will do. And that is true when things are easy and comfortable, when things are going our way, and even when things are hard and difficult and challenging and painful. Paul continues on in verses 3 to 5. He says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
And what Paul is in essence saying is that trials and challenges and difficulties and hardships, they don't change the fact that we can be confident and hopeful and optimistic about everything God is doing and is going to do. So suffering produces endurance. Now, the word endurance carries the meaning of single-mindedness, of, of focusing on what is helpful, what is important. Right? Challenges and hardships has a way of causing us to, to really focus on, on what matters. For many of us, this pandemic, as hard and as challenging as it's been, for a lot of us, one good that's come out of us, come out of it, it's that it's helped us to, to, to really focus on, on what really matters. For a lot of us, there are some things that used to matter a whole lot before this pandemic that really don't matter that much at all. And there are things that we used to take for granted that perhaps didn't matter as much that we have learned to to hold a little tighter, hold a little closer. Paul says suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character carries the meaning of of being tested, of, of being proven. I think an experienced athlete, a proven winner, a battle-tested soldier, it's a quality of confidence that comes from knowing how one will respond when one experiences a certain challenge, a certain hardship. And lastly, he says, character produces hope. And it's kind of interesting what, what Paul has led us to. He doesn't say that suffering produces success. He doesn't say suffering produces more happiness. He doesn't say suffering produces less suffering. He says suffering produces hope. So if you step back and you think about what he's saying, he says, our hope in the glory of God enables us to rejoice in suffering because it produces more hope. Hope produces hope. And you see what Paul is telling us? What the scriptures are saying is that true and lasting joy is a joy that is ultimately rooted in God and what he's done and in what he's doing. The more hope in God we have, the more joy we experience. And if we're not convinced enough, Paul finishes this section with two more supporting arguments. First one, verses, eight and nine, verses 6 to 8. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, if God went to great lengths to show us his love while we were sinners, when we were his enemies, how much more is he going to demonstrate his love now that we are his sons and daughters, now that we have peace with him? If God loved us then, how much more does he love us now? Second argument, verses 9 to 11. It says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? 
For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In other words, if Jesus' blood, his blood alone, had the power to save us from wrath, how much more will he continue to save us and give us life through everything else he has at his disposal? Or in other words, if Jesus' death accomplished so much for our salvation, how much more will he accomplish through his life now that he's ruling and reigning as Lord and King? When we consider all that God has done, when we consider what we have received by faith, we can and should rejoice in all that God will do. Now, I'll be honest with you this morning. As I was preparing this, this message, a part of me was concerned that talking about joy and rejoicing and celebrating in light of what's going on in, in our country, in our world, in light of everything that happened this week, that uh, my fear is that it would seem a little insensitive, maybe even a little ignorant, a bit ill-timed. With COVID once again on the rise and the amount of grief and sadness some of us are feeling, sense of isolation and loss, fear and worry, perhaps even frustration and anger. When you think about politically where we're at, and just the tension and division amongst our country, amongst Christians, amongst family members, friends, the church. There was a part of me that wanted to put a disclaimer in right here. That basically, in essence, said, even though we're called to rejoice and experience joy, it's okay if you don't, in light of the challenges that we are facing. But the thing is that when you look through the scriptures, when you look through our passage, when you look through Paul's writings, there's no such disclaimer. There's nowhere in here that gives us permission not to rejoice because of our circumstances. And the reason why is because joy is ultimately evidence of faith. Joy reflects who we trust and what we rely on for confidence and for security. What we have to remember is Paul is writing to a group of believers in the first century who are experiencing their fare of hardship themselves. He's writing to believers who are experiencing things like poverty, isolation, judgment, rejection, persecution, and even tension and division racially, politically religiously, amongst family members, friends, and even within their very own church. And Paul's encouragement to them, his exhortation to them, is the same as it is to us today. We are to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God 
We are to rejoice even in the midst of challenges and hardship. We are to rejoice in light of everything that Jesus has done for us. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't experience other emotions as well. It doesn't mean we can't grieve. It doesn't mean we can't experience sorrow and sadness. It doesn't mean we can't get frustrated and angry at things like evil and sin and injustices. But because we've been declared righteous, because we have peace with God, because we have access into His grace, because God is fully with us and for us, because He finds joy and delight in us, because He has immense favor towards us, we are to rejoice in all that He's doing and in all that He has in store. So wherever we are today, as we close our time and as Mark and as Matt and Mark, or Mark and Matt, the M&M boys, uh, come back up to uh, close our time with, with worship, let us pause to reflect upon all that God has done. Let us reflect on what our faith has enabled us to receive and what we get to experience. And as we consider what God has done for us, let us rejoice. Let us give thanks. Let us celebrate. Let us praise. And if there are things that are preventing us from experiencing that joy, if there are things that are holding us back from placing our hope in God and in God alone, then let us bring those to Him as well. Let us invite Him to speak. Let us entrust those things to him. But as we come together as the church, as we invite the Spirit to continue moving in us and through us, let us focus our eyes and our heart on what God has done so that we can rejoice in the hope of what he's doing and in all that he will do. Will you pray with me? Good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for all that you have done. God, I pray for, for forgiveness for all the ways that I take those things for granted, for all the ways I allow them to re simply remain as head knowledge, rather than to allow it to, to change and transform my heart. So God, as we stop and as we pause to reflect on all that you've done for us, as we think about the peace that we have with you, the access that we have into your presence, into your grace, the joy and the delight that you have for us, God, I pray that you would ingrain those truths onto our hearts, that you would help 
each and every one of us to experience more of that reality so that we can find our hope and our confidence and our joy in you and in you alone. God, as we consider the challenges that we're facing, as we consider the hurt and the pain and the anger and the division that's going on all around us, God, we ask for your healing. We ask for more of your presence. We ask for more of your hope. So God, move in us. Change us, transform us. Enable us to see you for who you are, for all that you've done. Thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.